0: Hello and welcome to a fresh episode of NBRI, New Business and Retail Insights from the Center for Retailing Studies at Mays Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Thanky Shankar, Director of Research and Coleman Chair, Professor of Marketing. It is my honor to welcome our guest today, Dr. Barbara Kahn, the Patty and J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, and Executive Director of the Marketing Science Institute. Barbara is an internationally recognized scholar on variety seeking, brand loyalty, retail assortment issues, and patient decision-making, whose research provides marketing managers with a better understanding of the consumer choice process. She is the co-author of The Shopping Revolution, How Successful Retailers Win Customers era of endless disruption, and also the author of Global Brand Power, Leveraging Branding for Long-Term Growth. She served as the Dean of the Miami University Business School and also the president of the Association of Consumer Research. She also co-hosts the Marketing Matters podcast from the Wharton School. Barbara has PhD, MBA, and MPhil degrees from Columbia University. Thank you, Barbara, for taking out your valuable time to join me in this conversation. How have you been? I mean, this very trying COVID-19 times.
1: No, well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And, you know, coping like everybody else is, It's as people are calling it, the new normal. So I'm very used to being in my kitchen and talking to my colleagues across the country like I'm doing now. In fact, in some ways, isn't it true that we can talk to people more easily than we did before time? So.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I'm glad that you're adjusting very quickly to the new normal. And, uh, you know, Barbara, you've got such a wonderful background and experience in so many different activities and spheres. Uh, It'll be best for me to ask you to describe yourself in maybe five words or less. uh, Who is Barbara Kahn?
1: Well, professionally, let me talk about that. I'm not sure you want to know all the rest of it. But uh, professionally, I've been a person. Actually, if you from my very beginning, I started out as a modeler, a quant modeler. And I was interested in shopping behavior, using panel data to determine whether people bought loyally over time or whether they sought variety over time. And so I've always been interested in people's patterns of behavior. And from that, those start, that start, I became more and more interested in the consumer behavior behind the purchase behavior that I was observing. And so for many years, I did a lot of research to try to understand the phenomenon of variety seeking, why people chose variety in some situations and didn't choose it in other times, and what were the different patterns of variety they were interested in, what influenced it, like mood or, or things like that. And from that, I just kept jumping, you know, one little increment to the next, and I started being interested in assortment variety. So if you understand that people like variety and they don't want just straight black bicycles, you know what, they want multicolored bicycles, then you obviously get to the question of, well, how much variety should exist in an assortment? And I started looking at those kinds of issues, assortment variety, And from all of that, I became interested in the difference between actual and perception. And what I believe, and I think most marketers believe, is it's not what's actually true, but it's what you perceive to be true that is the foundation for your decision making. And so my most recent research really has focused on perceptions. And I do a lot of experimental work. And what I do is I hold the actual construct constant, but I change The perceptual construct and show that that will influence decision making. So I started out because I was interested in variety holding the actual variety constant, but changing the way the variety was perceived and there are a lot of ways you can do that structural things to an assortment that can change what people think is more or less variety and there have been some Very famous experiments that I didn't run that I thought were quite interesting. You probably know about them in the FMI, the Food Marketing Institute, where they actually showed in the supermarkets where you can take away skews so there's literally less actual variety, but if you do it strategically, the perception of variety is higher and people are more likely to purchase. So I did a lot of work in that area, which I thought was quite interesting. And then I've recently done work on how packaging influences perceptions and that You can hold the actual quality of the product constant, but you change the packaging and you can affect purchase behavior. So those are the kinds of things I've done in research. But I've also been interested because I ran the retailing centers. I know you run a retailing center. And um, as a result of that, you talk to a lot of retailers and I ran that retailing center and I think you've been doing it forever. So you probably did it during this time too. Right. I did it from 2011 to 2017, which was an incredibly interesting time in the retail world called the retail apocalypse, disruption in retail. Right, even now,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and building on that retail apocalypse, we've now entered the new normal of COVID right. and all of that has hit retailing. And so it's not really my research. I don't run research per se, but I I'm, have talked to industry professionals extensively right. and I read the trade Journals extensively. And so that's become the area that I'm most interested in now.
0: Excellent, that's a very good uh, introduction to your research journey, which was my next question. So you kind of touched upon it already. So it looks like you're a variety seeker yourself in research, you started with uh, you know, modeling brand loyalty, moved to consumer behavior. And I'm fascinated by your work and uh, assortment particularly the perceptions that you talk about, perception of variety, perception of uh, packaging, perception of quality in general. And you also have done a lot of work on branding, right? So um, tell us something about your work in branding and how do you relate that to the other work that you've so far talked to, talked to us about?
1: Yeah, I mean, the only research I did on branding had a little bit, and I did a while ago, and now there's much better work out there, but I was interested in, a number of years ago, in the idea of corporate responsibility and how all of that affected branding. Um, So I did it, as I said, a long time ago, so it was really at the beginnings of thinking about that, but if I think about the way branding's happened now, Um, And I'm not doing research on it, but I, I just, I am interested. You're keeping on
0: top of it, yeah.
1: Yeah, the idea of like, what role should a brand play in the conversations of today? And, you know, we're not only in the area of the new normal due to COVID, but we're in Black Lives Matter kind of area and taking stands. Um, and, and the role that a brand should play, some of the very interesting decisions Nike has made or some of the other brands have made. Now Disney
0: um, with Colin Kaepernick. Yeah.
1: yeah, that one or the Facebook you know, positions that brands have taken and, and how that's affected, where they advertise, where they don't advertise. That's a very interesting phenomenon. It calls into question not only research questions that people are doing work in, but Just what the role of the CEO is, what the role of the CMO is, what the role of your marketing should be, things like that. Those are very interesting questions.
0: So that's, I'm I'm glad you brought that issue of social responsibility to branding. So do you believe that brands are now rethinking their value proposition to add this social responsibility component to their value proposition, or they're just simply doing this as, kind of table stakes to just make sure that they are, uh, they're not perceived otherwise.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's part of the questions that people who care about these issues ask. So the people who are doing it in what your table stakes are like to differentiate or you know right. whether you're doing it to play in the game or doing it to try to differentiate, I think that's right. implicit in your question. Right. As a business decision, what's the best way to position my brand? I think for people who care about these issues, They sniff that out and they don't particularly like that. Um, And the people who do care want to see authenticity. So one of the companies, I mean, one of the famous companies people talk about all the time are like Ben & Jerry's or Patagonia. I actually have done some work with Unilever and I'm really impressed with Unilever. Like when I talk to Unilever and they do own Ben & Jerry's, but Ben & Jerry's has kind of a separate brand identity. The notion of sustainability and doing the right thing with their products and making sure they're improving the earth. I've been to the headquarters of Unilever in New Jersey and those people, fundamentally believe that, you know? Right. And they usually, that that is the kind of thing that, now I'm not saying they always do everything right, but they do try to make a real stand on a position that they believe in They're Also, Unilever was the famous Dove story, you know, on what, what beauty is and, you know, that right. kind of notion. Um, and I think that if you do a good job on that and it's easy right. to make mistakes, but if you right. do a good job and you have real values, it is actually a good branding strategy from a business point of view, because while you, make, make, while you might make some enemies, I think you develop a loyal following for people who care on those issues.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned the word authenticity of brands, and at least uh, taking a stand on some of these issues does really improve the authenticity of brands but uh, also I'm trying to relate it to your research about perception, although it was more about variety and uh, packaging. Uh, how do you think that now, now that post-COVID, brands are more concerned about being not left, left out, right? Because you know, consumers are now ordering all the uh, brands that they can get now, because there's a shortage of grocery brands and other stuff. Do you think that these kinds of stands and taking a particular role changes changes the perception of branding in general.
1: Well, yeah, there's a lot of questions in there that we can un- unpack. Unpack, yes. yeah, yeah. We you know, we I've seen a lot of data post COVID on changes in behavior. So there's right. a couple of things that let let me let me write them down so I don't forget them. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Take your you time. Let's unpack um, them
0: one by one.
1: <laughs> yeah. So let's let's start with the first idea of. Um, how COVID has affected some of these social decisions and things like that. One of the things that's really interesting, a big issue in this branding, take a stand has been on sustainability and right. a lot of the millennials in Gen Z. Um,
0: they care about money it.
1: money where their mouth is. You know, it's all, who didn't think that being sustainable and good to the earth wasn't a good thing. A lot of people, I mean, if you did a survey on that, people would say, yeah, I want to do the right thing. But the difference was they didn't, buy products that supported that. Because typically in the past, those products cost more money. And if you really believed in those issues, you would make a choice regardless of the price to sustain your values. And historically consumers said a lot of stuff, but when push came to shove, their purchase behavior did not follow what they were saying. It seems to be different with this generation. With millennials and Generation Z, they do buy products even if they cost more money that speak to their values. One of the things that's very interesting is how COVID has affected those feelings of sustainability. And this is like what you were saying. First of all, when brands are not available, or second of all, if you're worried about disease and reusing things and some of those stuff, that puts at odd or puts a trade off some of these sustainability and health issues. And that's been a tricky road to walk down. I have asked marketing managers about those issues. And those who have done research and think also what they think believe you still have to be true to the sustainability values. And regardless of what you think COVID is going to do to all of that, right. um, sustainability should be a value that you adhere to and navigate through. So it's not something that's going away, even though COVID has suggested some of those things are at odds. So that's one point that I think COVID is Believe in what you believe in. Those are still good values. Figure out how to navigate it through this COVID world. That would be the soundbite answer. The other thing that I think you said, which is interesting, again, and it has to do with, I think the heart of your question was, you can't always get what you want. You know, there's stockouts. You have new needs. A lot of your behaviors have changed because of what you've been doing now that you didn't used to do. And you're navigating into different brands than you used to buy, et cetera. So I have seen grocery data, and I know you do this, so you may have seen this kind of data also, um, that shows that shopping, shopping behavior has changed in the grocery store. A couple things that I've seen, and I'm curious if, it, if you've seen this too. One of the things is that consumers are making, not surprisingly, fewer, fewer visits to the store than they used to, and they're buying more when they go. <laughs> So they're doing more planned visits. They're thinking about a little less impulse buying or impulse trips, more regular trips, and a little bit more spend on each trip. Right. And that difference- if they are going
0: to the store at all, many of them are getting delivered too.
1: Right. If they're going to the store at all, you tend to see it skew a little younger. Some of the older people are staying home. So there's some demographic differences. But if there's a main effect, it's something like along those lines. So that's one thing. That's not that surprising. That kind of makes right. it more pretty. They're
0: forced to kind of.
1: The other thing that you're seeing is people are buying into brands. And this is what I think you said, and there is data on this that they didn't buy before. Right. Um, And one of the things that just anecdotally the media is picking up, that's kind of interesting is, you know, people are buying more Campbell's soup. They're buying more, Oreos, You're buying more of these legacy CPG brands.
0: In fact, General Mills has uh, uh, increased its sales by close to 50% post-COVID. So that's what the report that I I remember seeing today. So you're absolutely right on.
1: And what's interesting about that is before this whole COVID thing, when we were still in the retail apocalypse time, One of the things that was really being threatened is all these CPG firms were seeing right. rapid de- decreases in their market share. So you think it's a
0: revenge crazy. of the CPG <laughs>
1: <laughs> brands right now?
0: Okay, yeah. right. manufacturers. Right. So
1: that's really interesting, right? And you can speculate, I haven't seen research on this, but you can speculate many reasons for that. You know, like we have seen in recessions in the past that people feel nostalgia and they buy old brands, you know, maybe right. it's good old days in the past, one of those things. Maybe it's when you're at home, you're going back to basics, you're cooking more, and so those brands are more important, whereas you used to go to restaurants. I don't know, you could see a lot of reasons why you might, but it is true that the CPG firms are are doing pretty well, most of them, and all of the Clorox Campbell's, you know, crap, all of the, like you said, cereal brands, these were the brands that were just being hit in the retail apocalypse, so it's funny. But then the question becomes, you got these new people, uh, these young people buying into your brands. And I think this is what your question was getting at. How do you keep them? You know, like what, what happens? Maybe we're going to be in COVID land for uh, two more years, maybe 10 more years. Who knows what's going to Or maybe it's going to be over by January. But either people will get used to this and revert back to their old habits or life will return to the way it used to be. And How do you try to keep Okay, these new on. buyers in the brands when you've gotten them to switch in? And to just add a little more meat to your question then, would these authentic values be something that keeps them?
0: It can keep them, yeah.
1: I, I don't know if that was what you were implying in your Yeah, questions.
0: that was where I was coming from. Could that be a basis for creating authenticity or do you have to go beyond that uh, in the sense that I know some brands are talking about uh, not just and I mentioned the word table stakes, that every brand is now required to be socially friendly, environmentally responsible, all of those about, but what else do you do over and about that, right? That's what uh, becomes a matter. And maybe in this COVID age, some brands are even thinking about, uh, we, we understand your pain, We're, we will uh, deliver different things to you in different ways, right? So that's increasing the convenience, reducing the friction, uh creating more conversation dialogues do you think those would be some of the ways to build, build in some authenticity or you think just being true to their original value proposition, plus adding a few uh, um, you know uh, esg or you know environment the, the social and the governance aspects of your business is that enough
1: it's hard to believe it'll be enough because right. if you've seen evidence in the past that the millennials just didn't buy ke double good as, you know, failing <laughs> marketing um, okay. proposition, that that will be sufficient. And so, you know, any brand that stays tired and doesn't understand what values matter to people, eventually, okay. you know, you might have been in a good situation, but you got to stay relevant, I think. Right.
0: So you think that this is very, this is a good opportunity. One view is that this is a great opportunity for brands to actually turn the tide in their favor, which you alluded to that a lot of these brands are making come back, because now they can shape the conversation, shape the preferences toward them, right? And to in a certain extent, to a certain but extent. But
1: I wouldn't take it for granted.
0: Right, um, and I think that's true to a certain extent. And you know, you, 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 your point makes a lot of sense because let me give you an example of myself. I, I used to buy Dannon yogurt. Now it's not available during this uh, pandemic time. At least I couldn't order and pick it up on the store. I guess it's available, but you have to go into the store and then pick up because there's shortage of uh, uh, supplies. So now I'm forced to buy some brands that are either store brands or brands that I've not heard of and so on. So I'm thinking if I were Dannon, Dan I would I'd be missing out an opportunity because I'm losing out a customer like me and should be uh, more proactive, you know, either through supplies or even communication. Yeah. Uh, even if you cannot supply, you can say, hey, wait a minute, we're working on it, it'd be coming back to you, such and such a date. And I'll give you one other example, you know, uh, bicycles. You know, I don't know if you've heard of it, bicycle is the new toilet paper now.
1: Hmm. Uh Peloton, you, I know. Pardon me. Peloton, you can't get for months now.
0: I know. So Peloton is an extreme example, but just regular bicycles. You know, uh, so uh, one of the issues with bicycles is that it's completely empty. All the racks are empty, and people are paying a premium and so on. So uh, this is an opportunity for uh, retailers like Academy, the exporting goods, to reach out to consumers and say, hey, bicycle may be out of stock but hang in there, you know, we're coming back at you or whatever it is with you, or any of the manufacturers the bikes directly to the consumer. I don't see them doing, perhaps because they are too caught up with their inventory problems and trying to solve it. But you and I worry about the same issues that how do you retain the customers in post COVID scenario, right? Which is gonna be, there are gonna be a lot of shakeouts and lots of differentiated players. And at that time, would you still retain the customer? Uh, what do you feel that uh, retailers of brand make manufacturers should be doing here?
1: So when the brand is stocked out to keep the memory of the brand open until they can buy it again, is that basically? Is the that
0: is it? one of the ideas or at least to engage with the consumer so that they don't lose the consumers, right? Yeah. You know,
1: I mean, that, I think that's, that's an interesting example of a situation, but it's part of a bigger question. Like, I think you are seeing a lot of brand because you can do this online, go direct to the end user. Typically, you know, the CPG firm and that kind of stuff was really a B2B play. You were really kind of communicating, you were doing some B2C advertising, but your customer was Walmart or Kroger or somebody like that, you know, because you weren't really selling direct to the end user. But now, with being online and things like that, you're seeing a lot of brands take more of a direct to the end user kind of branding opportunity and not branding through in-store you know, or in multimedia advertising, but really developing a vibrant relationship right. online through the through, through the internet, mostly or social media or TikTok, um, right. with the end user, and that I think is part of a general trend, right. and it's part of the reason that some of the retailers, if they don't get their get, get you know their game in gear or they get their act together, they're going to lose because these retailers used to be the ones who did all the customer experience around the brands that were in their stores, and now Now, they're creating their own experience direct.
0: Right, so you're right that (laughs) this retailer could be disintermediated in this direct-to-consumer environment, which brings me to uh, another category which you are very involved with and uh, you've done some work on, which is basically luxury and fashion, right? we know that in the post-COVID world, people are buying essential items, non-essential. Luxury is taken a beating, as you know. And uh, fashion uh, is also in a uh, questionable place because, you know, a lot of spring fashions have to be discarded because they were uh, inventoryed out uh, or excess inventory. Uh, what do you think should be the game plan for manufacturers and marketers there? How, do, how should they get, get their mojo back?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's tough. Now, you know, it's been a little bit uneven. Um, some retailers are doing, every, all the apparel business is doing badly. So that's just, there's a general hit all around, but some are hit less than others. Like Lululemon, for example, is one that's doing compared better to- Better than others, the others. Apparel, so. Yeah, better than the others. Nike it, online has done well, but obviously they took a hit in their stores. Um, so some of the some of the apparel has been- you know has been you know part of the problem is it's a question of what you're doing in your life if you're not going out to dress up events you don't need a new dress right. you now if you're if people are only seeing your top half you don't need new pants you know right. I think part of it is just your lifestyle is different That's right. and, why would you buy product? It's very hard to imagine buying nice clothes when you can't imagine when you're going to, when is that wedding going to happen, actually? I've had my right. wedding now canceled three times already. I so I don't need a new dress yet. You know? I
0: know. Um, so I think it's, do you think it's a temporary sign or you think it could, uh, it could you know, foreshadow that. a permanent shift? Because people might say, hey, wait a minute, I could manage without all these extra items in my wardrobe. I, I'll, I'll I mean, there's my couple
1: things about that. I've seen yeah. people argue both ways. One, people are saying, you know, we're definitely going to work at home more now that people are used to it and see that it happens. That's been a trend that people have talked about. But then I saw the New York Times had been an article about they've been saying this forever. And in fact, it just doesn't work out. People like to go back into the office and you'll start to see that there's a need for going back in the okay. office. Other people have said, the more time I stay in my house, the more I I recognize the value of face-to-face and I cannot wait. And certainly we know with what we observe on Memorial Day on July 4th, apparently being in clusters face-to-face was very important to people. (laughs) And they kind of reacted not, you know, you saw it in Texas, you're seeing it in these other states. You know, the disease is ramping up again because people seem to think face-to-face matters a lot. So it's kind of hard to believe. That we will go back So that's one thing. The other thing that I have heard, though, is once people experience comfort, they never 100 percent go back to discomfort. Okay. Um, so yes, we'll we'll wear, wear dresses again, we'll do all sorts of nice things again, you know, some of it. But there probably will be a lingering main effect of more comfortable clothing.. Right as a result of this. I, I think that. There's one other thing is this notion of luxury. Luxury is very interesting, because like in the recession of 2008, 2009, luxury was the first thing that came back. And there's a number of reasons why luxury came back during that, and I'm sure you know this, too. One is the Chinese consumer, of course. Right. Um, and a lot of that business came back through, through China. Right. The other thing was, in a lot of these economic downturns, people are not uniformly affected. And the rich people are typically still rich. And a lot of the problems happen, you know, for people who can not uh, least afford it. It's not fair and it's not good, but we do see that. And part of the reason luxury has gone down is an economic recession, yes, is China's not being the savior right now because they have their own issues. But it's also partly because the people who, And we're not going out, so I don't need a new person, things like that. But it's also partly because the people who can afford it think better of purchasing now because it seems kind of insensitive to spend money on luxury when other people are suffering.
0: So you think conspicuous consumption is uh, being deliberately suppressed by some of these richer individuals just to show empathy towards the others? Uh, And that that may be... Hiding the real demand, right? Some of
1: it, yes. Later. I saw that in 2009. I was in Miami. I think you alluded to that as the dean of Miami right. at the time. There's a lot of very wealthy people there. And I talked to a lot of wealthy people at the time, and they said that would just be, I, I could not do that. There's no way I'm going to go into a luxury store and buy something like that. That just seems so frivolous. Uh, you know, I'm not going to do that. Um, and so... So there's a lot of reasons why you might see luck. I think luck has be been around for 300, 500 years, not going anyway, you know, it'll be back, but- Okay.
0: When... But the form and shape in which it'll we'll be back, maybe uh, not, we're not sure as yet. Which brings me to the issue of futures. What do you, where do you see as the future? We've been talking about, you know, post uh, COVID-19, what we are currently experiencing, and we're, we're still in a world where we don't have a cure for uh, COVID-19 nor a vaccine. So there's a lot of uncertainty, but wh- where do you see the future go from here? You know, of course, you've got to temper your predictions with some uh, uncertainties yourself, but uh, what are some of the things that we are missing out we should be seeing?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I've been talking about like the future of retailing, so I'll stick into retailing. Right, yes, definitely. So, and and again, I've talked to a lot of marketing managers, and I've seen numbers on this, that a lot of the trends that I, I wrote about, I wrote a book called The Shopping Revolution, which, by the right. way, um, as we're sitting here, I'm revising. Uh, I have a new chapter on China in the book, and, you know, I only published that in 2018, it's already out of date, you know, so. I
0: know, it's, uh, things are moving very fast, so.
1: Quickly, so, uh, well, now, what was I saying? I thought, uh, oh, well, you said the future, so. What I, what people are saying, and I completely agree on this, is the trends that I was predicting in the shopping, shopping revolution, they're the trends that are happening now. And what COVID did was accelerate them. Right. And that's the word people are using, the acceleration effect. Right. And it's actually been quantified. Like I've heard, I don't know what you're hearing in your data, but when I've been talking to some of the, the firms, they've been telling me it's... If you look at the way people were predicting what was going to happen, some of the trends, what right. COVID has done is accelerate those trends two to three years. So within two months, things that we predicted would take two to three years to occur.
0: It's already happening. Yeah.
1: Happening. And yeah. so what are those? Like more e-commerce, a move to frictionless payment, right. you know, certain kind of moves and changes in the brands that are making it, the retailers right. that are going in and out of business. These kinds of things that we already saw before COVID Right. The very nature of COVID just accelerated the trends we already saw. Do you agree with that?
0: Yes, definitely. And also related to that, the store closures, brick and mortar store closures. This year, we are predicting about seventy five hundred store closures, far beyond uh, you know the kind of number of stores that were closed last year. Right. Uh, so uh, that those are all really acceleration is a great word uh, for this. But where do you think so uh, retailers and you know, um, marketers should be focusing on that they're not paying enough attention to now because they're in a panic mode right now.
1: Well, that's part of the reason I'm redoing my book, by the way. And and it, again, it was I started redoing it before COVID, and then COVID came, so I accelerated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the re- I right before COVID hit in November, I went to China and I tried to study Chinese retail because I think of Chinese retails uh, being ahead of the American retail and, you know, some of the things that are trends there, I think we should be paying attention to. And China, you know, China's pretty interesting. And they, they have what Alibaba calls the new retail, right. which is really- The Hema
0: stores and other-
1: The stores. Hema stores and like the yeah. Hema stores are, well, we're calling omni-channel, but omni-channel is very product focused. So what people are talking about now is customer-centric- Experience, yeah. You know, at cu- customer-centric, omni-channel, so that you look at where the consumer is and you you model on a function of seamless integration across the channels that's consumer-centric. And that involves not only predicting purchasing and using data to predict where they're gonna be and what they wanna buy, but to follow up with the supply chain and the logistics so the product is where they wanna be, where they wanna be. So So virtually,
0: re Virtually uh, reinventing and redesigning the whole uh, supply chain, right?
1: Right, and that's what HEMA is. HEMA is not only a very cool in-store experience, they really are very cool stores, but they're also fulfillment centers, you know, yeah. and the notion of figuring out. So you buy a ninety, more than 90% of the transactions in China happen on the phone, so that's yeah. another acceleration we're seeing. So it doesn't matter if you're in the store or outside the store. Who knows where you are? It doesn't matter. You're on your phone. But the goods have to be where you want the goods to be, to be when whether you wanna take it home or have it delivered. And you're gonna have to figure all of that out from the customer-centric. So China's been talking about this for a while. Amazon is kind of on this, but Amazon doesn't really have the physical stores in the same way. So they don't quite, Walmart's a better bet. You probably follow that.
0: Yes, Um, both of us uh, are trying their best to reinvent themselves. Well, in uh, Amazon's case, uh, you know that Amazon Go stores are, uh, are somewhat similar to Hema, but not quite. That's I don't the think they're
1: fulfillment centers, though. They
0: are not yet. Uh, that's why I'm saying that concept of cashierless, cashless. We talked about. Uh, in fact, cash might become a dirty word. <laughs> right.
1: No word no, literally.
0: <laughs> literally, in fact, so much so that lawmakers have to literally mandate stores to take cash because the poorest section of the society. They may be uh, unfairly affected because right, right. cash transaction may not be able to take. It. So I'm glad you're really uh, laying out some of the future issues very nicely. Uh, this is one other
1: thing, though, that I didn't sure. say, but it's true in China. You know, is the role of live streaming, and so right. one thing is the customer-centric omni-channel across channels at the customer level and affects supply chain. That's something that's the future, and right. the other future is the merging, complete merging. Of uh, media, media, yeah. media and so, all of that. I don't plus, know what the buzzword is for that. Convergence of media. I don't know what it's called. Yeah, media. it
0: could be a convergence or, uh, as they say, multimedia, multi-touch points and multi-screens and multi-experiences. Uh, but the idea is that, you know, you know, single Day, which is the largest, single largest day of uh, uh, sales, retail sales anywhere in the world, uh, a lot of these sales takes place through live streaming, right? right. Uh, and so you, you're onto a very good point. Uh, But that also is very consistent with the post-COVID world where technology is redirecting all the efforts in this direction, right? Uh, So it's been really wonderful talking to you about these things. Let me just switch gears a little bit and ask you a little bit about, you know, what do you do for fun? Looks like these are all things that you talk as if you're having fun doing these <laughs> things, but what else
1: do you do for fun?
0: So let's understand. I do
1: like to shop. I don't buy, but I like to
0: shop. Uh, okay. Like window shop as, yeah, as we used to have it in a physical store before, but now, you know, uh, online, you can shop anything, uh, endlessly, right? The endless aisle and so on. What else, uh, are we not, uh,
1: you Not know, I've heard I, about I'm you. COVID <laughs> land. And like, I, because I wrote this book, partly because I wrote this book and just because of my lifestyle and stuff. Before COVID, I was traveling every single week. So I had 200. Now
0: you're grounded.
1: <laughs> now I'm grounded. But that's yeah. fun. You know, I had 250,000 miles the year before. I'm concierge on American. Like, that's like, but you you know, you can imagine if you do some of this, it gets really old and really bad. You don't know? get you don't eat right, you don't do. So COVID in that sense has been fantastic to me. I can't go anywhere.
0: I know. I'm sure sure your family appreciates you more now. (laughs) Yeah.
1: You know, a lot of people are saying this, but you know what matters too. Family matters, friends matters, exercise, health. That's what it do. That's
0: good. I'm glad you look up on it in a very positive way. Um, But what are some of the things? Have you been reading some books? I know that as an MSI executive director, you're interfacing with a lot of companies. What are some of the new things that you're hearing and reading that you like to share with us?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean I told you a lot of what I when I tend to talk to them, I've talked to them really pre and post COVID. So a lot of okay. those a lot of those examples that I gave you earlier were from tough. From Ministers. those open okay, people. So, a lot of that came from my MSI interaction. You know, the MSI companies, as a lot of people are, they're trying to navigate their budgets through this because it's not only a lot of this COVID stuff has hit marketing companies pretty hard. Um, And there's the economic recession or depression or whatever we're calling, and that. You know, and so a lot of people we deal with our CMOs or people in the analytics in the marketing track. And when you're worried about budgets and you go down to zero budget, as you can imagine, marketing gets caught. I think that's the wrong thing to get caught. Right. Um, I think the smarter companies, you know, that do well are the ones who figure out strategically what marketing to keep investing in. But sometimes when you're just scared, you just caught. And then it's kind of hard to make sure you're cutting correctly. So I think dealing with navigating these waters, you know, some companies, it's a huge boon. There's some companies that have too much business, but many, many companies are trying to navigate and, you know, you can look at it as a what's that thing that, you know, the Chinese character for crisis and opportunity is the same character. You know, you can look at it as an opportunity and it's somewhat creative and fun to think about the ways to navigate it out. But there are a lot of constraints on behavior and um, budgets and, you know, a lot of layoffs and trying to figure all of that out and navigate that. That's difficult.
0: And you, and you mentioned these things. A couple of sectors that are really badly affected are basically the restaurant industry, tourism, travel. All of them are going through really big upheavals. And a lot of them are also uh, driven by small and medium Uh, scale businesses and uh, a lot of entrepreneurs are uh, kind of struggling at this point in time. So what kind of advice would you have for them? Because they are trying to now get out of this hole and then trying to, you know, stand on their own for the future. So are there any messages or any advice or, or thoughts that you might have for them? Because we have a lot of alumni ourselves, our former students, as we call them, they're really very successful, very strong entrepreneurs, but some of their businesses are caught up in this, uh, unfortunately, so what would be your messages for
1: them? Well, you know, I mean, what we've been teaching for 25 years, you know, forever, it's about customer value, right? So we know, like, what's interesting about this whole thing, and I don't know what it did today, but the stock market has not been cratering as much as some of you would think it might. It's which... almost so,
0: so, that, so much so that, People think there's a disconnect between the real world yeah, and the, but Yeah, but what it
1: does seem to suggest is there's value in the economy. Right. There's some value, and what you have to do is find the value. Right. So, and this is kind of what the, the general direction of your questions was, you know, what can I predict? What are these trends? Because right. what these companies do have to do is to pivot to customer value. Right. And they they can't be doing things that are now outdated and not useful, you know. Right. And you've got to see, and you've got to see where you can create value now. Like if I again, just staying in retail, yeah, obviously it's been a boon to Amazon and Walmart. But I don't think there's a person around who doesn't value their local grocer and their local restaurants, you know. But maybe they can't visit the restaurant now, so you are going to have to figure out where's the value there, um, and you're going to have to pivot very quickly. And and you're going to have to do it under constrained economic conditions. So you might have to lay off people, but you're going to have to figure out where's the new value, where do we want to be, how are we going to get there, and how do we do it with limited reach? I'm not saying it's for the faint-hearted. It's pretty difficult stuff, but it is doable.
0: yeah. Yeah, I think I'm glad you're pointing to the right direction. Look at points of adding customer value. So one of the things we're realizing increasingly is that there is what we, what I call digital Darwinism, right? Which is uh, people who are not digitally prepared in these businesses are suddenly finding themselves really out of place, right? And it's probably very late for them to wake up now and try to ramp up. Uh, so is there, a, uh, is there a message for them to really change some of the ways in which they wanna do business, even if it means calling for a radical, change of what they're doing. Well, some well, of
1: these businesses are people. Is right. a value in the marketplace. Some right. smart entrepreneur should get in there who knows right. how to do this right. and go help all those companies who need to get up to speed very quickly on right. digital, right? That's neat. Right. Um, so yeah, so, I, you know, now that you're mentioning this, I'm going to turn around and ask you a question. So like right. I agree, clearly COVID has pointed out the acceleration towards the digital. But what's super interesting is Burlington right before COVID right. discontinued all of their e-commerce and TJ Maxx doubled down recently.
0: Exactly, most of them, yeah.
1: So what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. I did have a conversation with one of the senior executives, Burlington. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's a sign that you think of yourself as, well, if you think about these stores, especially TJ Maxx, they are considered the treasure hunt destination. So people go to look for things that, at branded items at low value, I mean at high value at low price. And they still are people wanting to do that, but now they have to do it in an online world. And then they have to choose it online and then pick it up. But perhaps, you know, these chains are having too many brick and mortar locations, too little presence online. They feel like it's probably too late for them to really play the game. And then still, you know, when uh, people are able to visit, they still would be the hot destinations. So maybe that's what they're hoping. But at the same time, let me also caution you, uh, Dillard's, which is a department store, which was in a similar situation, very limited online presence, even though Macy's and even Penny's, which went bankrupt now, uh, had much stronger online experience. Dillard was caught uh, because they were not uh, adequately prepared. Uh, they have to also move some of it online. So I think it's still a question mark for Burlington's and the TJ Maxx's of the world, whether they can, uh, but I think they still have a value proposition that really uh, excites some of the consumers, some of their customers. The question is how long can they stay away from them? Because many of the stores are still closed. And that's why it goes back to my first question initially, will, retailers lose their consumers, they are not engaging with them,
1: right? Yeah, so like that's, I mean, I think that's a big change. It's not a small one of people who just really weren't ready in terms of um, digital. And instead of saying, oh, my God, let me, my bad, let me get up to speed. They both doubled down and said, no, this is what our proposition is. I personally think that's not the right answer. I think they should get up to speed in digital. And I hear the treasure hunt and I get it. And that's a very compelling thing. But like I said, I'm writing this chapter on China and I don't know how much you know Taobao, but Taobao is 100% online and it's 100% treasure hunt. So you can do treasure hunt online, but it's clever. It's algorithm induced. It's like people go down rabbit holes and they discover all sorts of things. Right. which, but it's a very different way of thinking about it. Right. Um,
0: but I think there's a fundamental difference, Barbara, if you think about the difference between US and China, because China did not have the retail brick and mortar store baggage that, uh, if you want to use the term baggage, um, may not be an appropriate term, but uh, they, they, can, they could start afresh. So they actually literally started and they started on uh, digital platforms, right? So they could actually create that experience. But here you may you have different segments in play. You have the baby boomers, you have the Gen X uh, and then Gen Y and uh, uh, Gen Z. And, you know, all, the, all of these have to have, they, they come from different backgrounds. So how do you really align yourself when you already everybody's experience uh, used to a different situation? So. I think it'll be fascinating how the pivoting is happening. You, you mentioned the word pivot earlier on, and I'm coming back to that. Uh, it looks like some retailers will have to pivot. Uh, some retailers will stay, try and make the best out of what they are known for perception you talked about. And some retailers are starting afresh the DTC companies, direct to consumer, the natives, the bonobos, the Bar- Barbie Parker's, the mattress, uh, the Casper mattress firms, so all of these. They might actually say that, you know, we're going to just target the Gen Zs and millennials and then we just, you know, we we just keep chugging along and there may be some shakeouts in here. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Like, I I don't know. It's hard to think about um, what's going to happen there. But I I think... You're right, there's a legacy. What you're describing in the US is this legacy physical space, Um, the heterogeneity and customer preferences. It's much harder to deal with the heterogeneity when you have this legacy retail baggage that you're talking about. So like the notion of pivoting to all of these different generations through a physical store or through a physical footprint that's huge, it's much harder to turn that around much easier to do that online you know right. and it's much easier to respond flexibly and use the algorithms and make sure you're constantly being in place so china definitely could do that much faster and china did like and a lot of the growth in china i read somewhere they're they're predicting 64% of retail in china is going to be online by 2025 or something you know and okay. we're we're less than 40% here so like that's a really big prediction and, but a lot of that growth in China is the third and fourth tier cities where they didn't have any physical retail t- retail you know.
0: locations. So they could that's- build a fresh, yeah.
1: And so- they can build a HEMA or they can build something that's better, you know, c- that connects better with online business. So it makes more sense.
0: Yeah, if they're talking about China too is the uh, over reliance or dependency on the Chinese supply chains, which is also coming back to haunt some of the US businesses. Uh, now, I think. Most of the U.S. businesses, in particular retailing, people are talk, think, talking about re- resilience rather than efficiency. So what do you, how do you think that's going to uh, change the landscape of retailing and business in well, the this other country? Thing that,
1: the other thing, you know, a lot of these bankruptcies, right. one of the things that, went, that happened with a lot of these bankruptcies is too much debt. Um, right. And a lot of these retailers, these small. when you're talking about these small people, they don't have cash. Right. And so that's actually it's very hard to pivot and to do all these things that you don't have any when
0: you're highly leveraged, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's a problem. Um, right. and so resilience is, you know, a function of flexibility, responding fast. finding the customer value and having the resources which typically is some kind of cash you've got to be able to allocate your resources as flexibly as possible so you can take the money out of something that's not working and put it into something that is and that's why you were talking about physical retail as baggage because it's kind of hard to move that money where you need it
0: that's true so you're you're still seeing a tough uh, environment out there for a lot of retailers so you're still predicting a big shakeout coming we already see a lot of bankruptcies. We talked about JC Neiman Marcus in the luxury space, J Crew, uh, to name a few, uh, and the list goes on. Forever 21 before that. Uh, are we? Are you expecting? You mentioned leveraged uh, uh, retailers. Are you expecting more of these coming?
1: Yeah, I mean, like you said, the prediction, the ad, not me, but the analysts are predicting, what's the number they're predicting at 2020? Very high. Yeah. Higher yeah. than-
0: 7,500 store closures, but they, they could all be, uh, you know, one retailer, two retailer, big retailers. Yeah, not. <laughs> uh, uh, it could be a lot of this, you know, we had smaller retailers like Tuesday morning, uh, go bankrupt. Um, very ironically, they announced it on Wednesday morning, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think- you know, jokes apart, it looks like a very tough environment. So uh, what are your last messages for professionals out there? You did mention the fact that you have to be more nimble, you have to be more flexible, but I also want to tie it back to this whole idea of uh, socially being responsible and uh, the fact that, how can they make an impact in the community? Because it seems to me that if you can tie these two things together, consumers will appreciate uh, your presence and they will really help you stay in business and then grow your business. So are there any silver bullets out there?
1: I think that's true, especially as a as advice for the local people, you know, stay true to your base right. um, and stay authentic to your base, but recognize what value they need. Learn to pivot fast enough, reallocate your resources, move fast. Um, work hard and you know some of these people will be okay Um, but like you know I live in center city Philadelphia we had really beautiful store and we had a we had beautiful stores the city had just really been rejuvenated we were a victim of a lot of the protests and things like that so like a lot of those store windows were crashed in some of those stores weren't going to make it anyway this last piece of all this looting kind of put them over the end you know so yeah I think when we get out to the other side of this our our local retail is going to take a hit, but there' are cycles, and eventually new people will come in with a new idea that that will satisfy the customer value. I think, I I think people value social interaction. I think they value face to face. I think they got to eat. I think they will want fashion will want luxury again. I think these things are basic human things and we'll come back, but it may take a while and it may come back differently. And so you got to be in the right place at the right time. You got to pay attention.
0: Okay. Thank you. Those are very good. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to add that I forgot to ask you about, right? Okay, this is fabulous. Thank you, Barbara. It's, it's always fascinating talking with you on any matter and this was no exception and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Hopefully our viewers and listeners will also enjoy it. Thank you again for taking the time out to join us. Barbara, And you have yeah, a- I enjoyed uh,
1: it also, thank yeah, you.
0: Yeah, uh, good luck with the rest of your research and your revision to the book. Um, Eagerly looking forward to the next edition. And I'll probably get an autographed copy of yours. Yeah. <laughs> thank you.
1: Okay. All right.
0: Take care. Right, thank Look you. forward. Bye. See you again.